Hi, welcome to ALFC Podcast. At ALFC, we seek the lost, teach the found, and send the disciples. We truly hope you are encouraged by this week's message. You know, two weeks ago we did, uh, our first message was mistaken identity. Uh, the second message was identity theft. And then the third message today is identity politics. And uh, so uh, it's not really a political message in any way, but you'll definitely see where it heads us uh, this uh, morning with one another. So if you would turn to, we're in a couple passages, Mark chapter 12, you can turn to if you're in your Bible. You can also go to Galatians uh, chapter 2. We'll be in both of those today and then also have some verses coming in between as we share this message. I'm going to pray. And we're going to dig right in. So, Lord, today as we come before you, Father God, I pray it's your word that holds true today in our hearts, Father God. As we hear so much noise in the world around us, Father, I pray that today your word can be a level of comfort food to us today, Father God. May we be able to sit at your table and enjoy your peace. And may the Holy Spirit dwell inside of us to encourage us with one another and help us to realize how much we desperately need Jesus above all things, God. So I pray you bless this time today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to Mark chapter 12, verse 13 today to launch off this idea, there's a group of individuals called Pharisees and Sadducees that approach Jesus. And they basically ask Jesus, what are your politics or what is your political belief? So they begin to ask him a question about taxes. Now, for the normal Jewish person, you fell in really two political categories. Number one, you fell under, you were called, you were a Roman sympathizer. This is where the tax collectors come from, is they were Roman sympathizers who actually loved and enjoyed the fact that Rome was over Israel and there were Roman soldiers, Roman rule, Roman government. And so they were known as Roman sympathizers who they had no issue with Rome. Then you had the people that were anti-Roman rule, which was most commonly the normal Jewish person, is they were absolutely against and, and they felt like by Roman government intruding into their life, into their daily life, they felt like that Rome had no right to enter into their daily actions and their daily beliefs and their daily faith. And so they go to, these Pharisees go to ask Jesus a question and they're trying to trick him because the thing is, depending on how he answers, he's going to get in trouble either way. So they go to ask him a tax question. And if he says, I don't believe we should be paying taxes to Caesars, then what's going to happen? Everyone's going to go to Pontius Pilate and says, there's this rabbi teaching us that we shouldn't be paying taxes to Rome. In which they would kill him. But if Jesus says you should pay taxes to Rome, Then what's going to happen is the Pharisees and Sadducees are going to go to all the people of Israel and say, hey, there is this rabbi who's a Roman sympathizer who believes that it's good that Rome is ruling over us. Sounds like a lose-lose to me. They're asking him a political question. Sounds like a question that people are trying to get churches and pastors in today. If I'm being quite frank, people want to know questions today. They want to ask, what do you think about the coronavirus? What do you think about marches? What do you think about rallies? What do you think about, you know, like there's people that are asking questions that are saying, hey, 
we want you to form an opinion. And what a lot of times they're trying to do is they're trying to trick you on an ideal so that they could go tell others and then they can begin to spread it. We see very similar times today. So what happens is as they go to ask Jesus a political question, he gives a kingdom answer. And you'll find that within Jesus's ministry. I encourage you one day, if you're trying to see what Jesus speaks on in modern day politics, you will find very little statements where Jesus talks about politics. What we, he will talk about is he will talk about the politics of the kingdom of heaven more than anything. Majority of his language in his teachings was the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Because why? Jesus was concerned with his rule, his governance, his place, which is his kingdom. So naturally he would speak about the very thing he controls. So here's what's happened as we launch off this thought today, as we hear this approach. This is how genius our Lord is, how he responds to a political question asked towards him. It said this in verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions. It's fake fluff. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus catches on what they're doing. He said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They marveled at him. You know, at first we look at this statement, we wonder, what are they marveling at when it comes to Jesus? What did Jesus say that was so revolutionary? What did Jesus say that was so incredible? What did Jesus say, in other words, that he said, I'm not going to get caught in your political jibber jabber? What did Jesus say? Well, here's what he said. He says, someone get me a coin of Rome. Which was their, what, what, it was their currency at that point. So someone brings it and he says, I have one of those original coins that you can look at. He says, whose face and inscription, I think I do have a picture of it. Could have, or I could or I couldn't. I emailed it, but that's okay. You could Google it. <laughs> so where there, he basically gets a coin or I also have a dollar bill. He gets a dollar bill and says, whose, whose likeness is on this? Whose face is on this? And at the time, whoever was in office, it had their face on it. So they say Caesar's face is on it. Or in other words, they say George Washington's face is on it. And so Jesus says, all right, then here's the deal. Render to Caesar the thing that has Caesar's face on it and render to God the thing that has God's face on it. But here what we have to ask. According to the book of Genesis, Who carries the face of God, the image of God? You and I. So what Jesus says is Jesus says, I'm unconcerned with those politics. What I'm concerned with is you. He says, I don't care where the dollar goes. I care about where you go. 
And so Jesus, as he's trying to get stuck, they're trying to trick him in a political conversation. Jesus makes this annotation to say, that is not what I'm concerned with. I'm concerned with the person who bears the image of God and what they are doing with their life what they are doing with their ministry, what they are doing with their person. There's a reason why it says they marveled at him because no one thought in a million years that Jesus would say, I'm more concerned with you than I am with Caesar. So what he did is he said, let's not have a conversation about Caesar. Let's have a conversation about you. Where are you at with God? Where is your soul at? With God. That is what he was saying. And this, in fact, begins to unpeel a layer of an issue that we see every single day today. Is we have diluted Jesus into an interest instead of our identity. And so in the same way, you know how you got to set up your, your Facebook profile and it tells us what are some of your interests. There we begin to list some of our favorite films, some of our favorite books some of our favorite places to eat. And in the midst of that, we also say, oh yeah, Jesus is an interest of mine as well. But Jesus is not an interest. Jesus is not a side hobby. You know, you may be a person here today, Pastor Aaron, he loves running. My wife, she likes shopping. Pastor Kenny, he likes motorcycles. Brother Louie, he likes boxing. In the same way, people today go, and I like Jesus. We treat him as this interest, just like I have, like, oh, Sunday, it's an, it's an interest to me. I just keep Sunday in my pocket as really an interest. And part of the problem that we face today is we've allowed Jesus to be diluted in such a way that we've lost the ideal that he's an identity, and we brought him into a simple interest. In the same way I like shopping, I like Jesus. In the same way I like LA Fitness, I like Jesus. And so what Jesus begins to do is he begins to say, listen, I'm not just an interest. I'm not something you just pick up on Sunday. I'm not someone you turn to just when you're in trouble. I'm not someone you look to just when there's a radical storm in your life. I am someone that is part of your DNA. I'm someone that's part of your identity. And so he radically challenged us to make him our identity. And he says, I refuse to be anything other than your identity. And then we jump in today to Galatians chapter two. And oftentimes we think of the early church. When we think of the early church, we think of it as a place that was perfect. You often hear from people, I wish we could go back to the days like the early church. Well, let me show you kind of what the early church was like at times. It was as, imp as imperfect as the church is today. And it had its things that it needed to work on as it does today. And we see that in Galatians chapter 2. We see the problem where the church had allowed certain, uh, they're not, I'm going to say political parties, but they're not true political parties. They're church politic parties. Develop. So we see in Galatians chapter 2, this is the apostle Paul speaking. 
And what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's explaining to people that he's such an apostle of Christ that he even when the apostle Peter, the right hand guy to Jesus, when even the apostle Peter wasn't following Christ correctly, he corrected him. So Paul says, I'm not scared of no one if they're not following the gospel in that moment. I'll even check Peter, Jesus's right hand. And he tells us why and how he did it. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says this, but when Cephas, that's the Aramaic name of Peter, we know the Greek name Peter, but Cephas was his Aramaic name, that would have been more of his given name. But when Cephas came to Antioch, now we have to remember Antioch is not part of Israel, Antioch is a, is a Gentile Greek place. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before men, certain men, came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the what? The circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I, Paul, said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's what happens. Is there was these individuals in the early church known as Judaizers. And what the Judaizers would do is that when they would give their life to Jesus, they would say, yes, I believe Jesus is the way to salvation, but I also believe you have to follow all the Jewish laws in order to be a true Christian. So in other words, they believed if you were a grown man Gentile who got saved at 30 years old, in order for you to be a true Christian, you still had to follow the Jewish laws, which meant you needed to be circumcised at 30 years old. And back then, they had no numbing agents, creams, anything like that. They couldn't put you to sleep, couldn't put you under, anything like that. They also believed you still had to keep the Sabbath. They also believed that you also had to eat kosher and all these other things. And they were known as Judaizers. So what they would do is they would allow the religion, the rules, the regulations of faith dictate who they hung out with. So what happens is, is Peter... And what was common in the early church days is after service on a, on a, on a Sunday, people would then gather and they'd have meals together. They'd fellowship. They'd still swap stories about Jesus and their life with Christ and all these things like that. So what happens is, as everyone's having a meal, Peter's over there hanging out with these new Christian converts that are Gentiles. These are Roman and Greek people, people that have no upbringing in the Jewish faith. So as he's there, he's dipping his hummus. He's dipping his pita bread. He's eating. They're laughing. They're talking. These Judaizers come in. The guys who are Christians but also believe you have to follow the Jewish law. And what Peter be, does do is as he looks at them, he looks at the Gentiles. He says, I'll be back. Hey, guys. Oh, yeah, no, them. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. No, they're not real friends. No, no, you know me. You know me. You know, I'm a true Republican. I want to hang out with them Democrats. Come on, man. Come on. That's not me. Come on. You know me. I'm a Democrat. I voted for Obama. You know, I wouldn't hang with them Republicans. Come on, man. What you talking about, man? 
I wouldn't, man, I wouldn't hang out with those African Americans. I wouldn't hang out with those white people. Come on, man, you know me. And then Barnabas comes in and he looks at the room. It's like, oh, shoot. Why are all the Jews hanging out together? Why are they all in their corner? Why are they all in their corner? How come they go into their white church and they're going to their black church? How come they're going to their Hispanic church? How come they're going? And I don't mean to be fun, but this is in the scriptures. So what happens is Barnabas goes and he's like, all right, well, I'm Jewish, so I, I better hang out with the Jewish people. And then all of a sudden, he talks about other people that were there and they came in, they look at the room, they're like, oh man, well, I'm not a Gentile, I better go with the Jewish people. And then you have Paul, the guy who's a radical Christian hater, who killed Christians, who hated Christians, who was what he called a Pharisee of Pharisees. He kept the law better than anyone has ever kept the law in their day. He walks in the room and he sees these political parties forming in the church. He sees people building a church based off of interests. He sees people building a church based off of other identities that are not Christ. And he looks in the room and he's disgusted by what he sees. And he says, Peter, shame on you for being the right hand man to Jesus and allowing these factions to grow within the church. To allow these interests to develop in the church and segregate you guys. What are you doing, Peter? You know this is not the gospel. You know that the example of the gospel is supposed to be the unity of the church. You know the only light we have to others is when we look at a world of segregation and divide, the only thing we have working for the gospel is our unity. And you're ruining that, Peter. He says, you're ruining that, Peter. And so that's what the enemy wants to do within the church is he wants to disunify the church from one another. He wants us to develop crews and clans and gangs based off of our interests instead of our identities. You know, Peter was not, was caught condemned in that moment. And we know ultimately through Peter's ministry that he corrected himself. And if we know, Peter was also the one in the book of Acts who had the dream where God showed him that Gentiles are supposed to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. This is the story of Simon the Tanner's house where he was sleeping and he had a vision and God put before him all non-kosher foods. And he said, arise and eat, Peter. And then God makes a statement, don't call unclean what I have cleaned. And he was talking about the Gentile. But you see, even Peter had allowed the divisiveness and the lies of the enemy to even infiltrate his heart. He began to be fearful of what other people would think of him. He went from being an outspoken gospel person to a person that within the gospel became more divided than ever. And so what we see today just briefly with one another is we look at some things that the enemy will try to do to get us divided from one another. To get us to a point where our faith is nothing more than an interest, than an identity. So here's the first tactic that the enemy will do that we see within this story of Peter. He will try to 
divide us, separate us. See, he will separate you. Here's the first point if you're taking points. He will separate you from others. He will distance you from people. He will get you an island unto yourself. He will get you isolated. He will get you fearing man's opinion. He will get you looking at other people's thoughts and opinions. He will allow other thoughts to come into your mind and begin to create a separation between people. He'll begin to try to put a separation between you and your spouse. Try to put a separation between you and your kids. He will try to separate you to get you alone. First Peter chapter 5 says this, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I love this, that this is 1 Peter chapter 5. If there's anyone that knows that Satan is out there roaring like a roaring lion, as we read in Galatians chapter 2, it's, it's probably Peter. He probably knows and has probably experienced the lies of the enemy that that's exactly what the enemy wanted to do with him in that moment in the church with the Gentile people. So he says, listen, guys, I know from experience, be watchful because Satan is roaming and roaring like a lion and he's looking to devour someone. So he's saying, stand firm and don't you be that person whom he can separate from the pack and devour. So he says, stand firm in your faith. We need some Christians today that stand firm in not the interest of Jesus, but in the identity of Jesus. That say, I'm not going anywhere. I cannot be moved. You know, during, during the initial stunt in COVID-19 where everything completely pretty much shut down, there was a point where we were as a church, we were figuring out what we can do and what we're allowed to do. So what we immediately had to do was, is we had to build a full studio in my living room in case it came, you know, early on a coronavirus, we were talking about how, um, you know, you wouldn't even be able to be driving on the streets and all these other things like that. So that's just one of the initial pictures. By the end of everything, they, they had to build a whole studio. And if you look, if you went to the corner of the right, which I have a picture of that too, there was just camera gear everywhere. There's wires everywhere, lighting everywhere. My kitchen batteries are being charged. Cameras are everywhere. Cameras are on my kitchen table. And for over three straight months, three times a week, we're filming at my house during this coronavirus. Many of you may have watched online and seen. You've seen my living room. You've seen my kitchen. You've seen, the only thing you probably haven't seen is my bedroom. And so we understood we had to film at the house. And so many people that would, I would talk to on a one-on-one, they, the, the only thing they wanted to know was, how is your wife putting up with all of this? Three months, staff in and out the house, Camera gear everywhere, wiring everywhere. People are asking, how's your wife even put up with this? And you've got a son, a toddler, so we're packing up, doing all these things every single week. In the midst of that, she lost her father, and I lost my, fa- my father-in-law during coronavirus due to cancer. And so we're dealing with that hardship and also dealing with filming in my house, in the living room, camera gear everywhere. And people are asking, they're asking me, how does your wife put up with that? 
And so one day I just happened to just ask my wife as we were regularly talking about it. And she said yes to what we were doing and camera gear everywhere. And in that moment, I said, babe, why? Why? I didn't find it weird, but everyone thinks it's weird that, that you're OK, that all of this gear is here for three months. Why? And she said, you know what, Adam? When we bought this home, we blessed this home and we said, God, may you use our home for ministry. And she said, while it's not what I had hoped for, that he would literally use it for ministry. She said, at the end of the day, this isn't my home anyway. This is his. And she said, so why would I be in more ways? Less? She said, why would I be telling God what he can do with his home? And so not only in that moment did I fall more deeply in love with my wife because she held the gospel to such esteem that I did. But more than that, it was also a place where Satan could not divide in our marriage, where normally would be easy for him to create a division in there. And so I had a spouse that recognized the same way I was recognizing in that moment. My faith is not an interest. You see, if, if my faith was just an interest, then I'd say, God, you can't have my home. If my faith was just an interest, I'd say, God, you can't even have my marriage. If my faith was just an interest, I'd say, God, you can't have my mornings of worship and prayer. God, I'd say you can't have my evenings. God, you can't have my Sundays because I'll give you one Sunday a month. Because you're just an interest to me. You're not my identity. You see, in that moment where normally... As I was talking to other men and they were like, my wife would never let me do something like that. And I'm sure their wife would if, the, if they really, truly had to. But in that moment, God had showed me that my marriage was aligned with unity of the gospel. And that's what we need to aspire to be within one another, just not in our marriages, but within each other. Is that we have to be unified because what happens is, is if my wife wasn't OK with that, that would create a separation within our marriage that would create much more silent nights together. That would create much more of being not in unity with one another in that time. But God had us said otherwise. And God showed us otherwise, that the gospel is our identity in our marriage. And so Satan will try to separate you from others. He'll try to get you hurt. He'll try to get you offended. He'll try to get you mad at other people. He'll try to, just like Peter, he'll try to separate you into certain spaces and places, not be unified. Second thing is that he'll try to do is he'll try to stick you into religion. You see, religion is rules, regulations, standards, laws. That's what happened with Peter. Peter began to allow the gospel to have these rules and rigidness. You got to be circumcised, literally the point that they say that there was a circumcision party. There was a church political party named circumcision party. The guys who believed you should be circumcised in the church. What a weird interest group to have. Imagine us having neighborhood groups and there was the circumcision neighborhood group. <laughs> That's how far they took that. Nah, man, you're not circumcised. You can't come to this Bible study, bro. Sorry, man. You go with Joe over there. He'll check you out. Let you know. <laughs> how weird. They literally had a circumcision party. You see, even then again, Paul re-repeats it. So you know these guys were trouble because Paul talks about them more than once. In Titus chapter 1.10, he says this, For there are many who are insubordinate, which means are not following the church, 
empty talkers and deceivers. And he says, especially those of the circumcision party, especially that neighborhood group, the circumcisers. They're absolute trouble. They're insubordinate. They're empty talkers. They're deceivers. They get you caught up in religion. They get you caught up in laws, rules, regulations. They get you caught up in the dress in church. They get you caught up in a certain type of musical stylings. I'm part of the gospel only party. I'm part of the CCM only party. I'm part of the country gospel music only party. He creates all these factions and these parties. And that's what the enemy will do with you and I. He'll make us choose our faith based off of our interests. And he'll create these laws and he'll create these restrictions to stunt us from the true gospel, our identity in Christ. Because an identity in Christ is meant to be freeing. It's meant to be, it's meant to break chains off of you. It's not meant to put chains back onto you. And so what the enemy will try to do is he'll try to rebound you, bind you up once again. Once you meet the gospel, you're unbound, you're free, and then he'll try to place new bindings on you, religion bindings on you, rules binding on you. And so we see the expressions begin to change. You know, many of us know in America, we all know this famous singer. His name was Elvis Presley. Were there any Elvis Presley fans back in the day? Uh, there's, yeah, see, there's like five. My mom is probably like the number one Elvis Presley fan. You see, Elvis Presley, he was huge here in America. He also had a manager named the Colonel. He was a famous music manager. And so I think I have a picture of Colonel. Yeah, Colonel and Elvis Presley. And you see, one of the things is, is Elvis, he was huge in America, but relatively speaking, he was not big anywhere else. Now, he was very known, he was highly well known all across the world. But he's less famous today than he really could have been. We all know the name Beatles and we all can sing a lot of the Beatles songs. It's been said that Elvis could have been even bigger than the Beatles in a lot of ways. But one of the things that was working against Elvis was Elvis wanted to travel all throughout the world. He had invitations to do concerts. And, and we knew even back, back in that day more so, in order for you to become more famous and in order for you to become more successful, you had to travel the world and do concerts. It wasn't just based off of where your albums went. It was based off of where you would go and perform and people would come and see you and you'd begin to continue to build and, grip and, and create all these fans. So the problem is when Elvis wanted to go to Japan and Elvis wanted to go to Australia and Elvis wanted to go to go to Asia and all these other places, Colonel told him, no, you're not going. And actually, no one really even wants you to do concerts over there. And so Elvis listened to the Colonel. And it's been told at the end of Elvis and Colonel's life that the reason why the Colonel told Elvis not to go across the world and sing was because he was afraid that Elvis would realize he didn't need the Colonel. And also he was afraid because he was an illegal alien in America. He was actually from Holland. And so he knew if he, tra he couldn't travel with Elvis because he wouldn't be able to make it back in the United States if he did. So instead, he would lie to Elvis and say, actually, no one really wants you to go and sing anywhere. Why don't you just go to this movie? So we know Elvis did a lot of movies. That's because that's what the colonel could control. 
So ultimately, he created a ceiling for Elvis that Elvis never could surpass. And see, that's exactly what the enemy will do is he will lie to you around religion. He'll lie to you around rules. He'll lie to you with he'll try to keep you from ascertaining a true relationship with God. And he will try to get in between you and he'll try to tell you lies like we talked about last week with the serpent in the garden. He will try to tell you lies like God doesn't have time for you. He'll tell you that lies that God doesn't need your prayers. He already gets so many enough. Why would he focus on your marriage? Why would he focus on your finances when God has so much stuff going on? Look at that person in church. They don't even look like they belong in church. They shouldn't even be here. I've seen the things they post. They can't have God. He'll begin to put these things in our head that limit our ability for the gospel, our desire for the gospel to spread. So he will try to stick you in to religion. And then the last thought is this. This is the biggest one. We've heard this a lot right now during this coronavirus. Stop the spread. Heard that. That's why we need to be hand sanitizing, using masks, social distancing, six feet apart. Because every time you turn on the news, it's about stopping the spread. Stopping the spread. Which for the record, I'm all for. I want to stop the spread. But here's what the enemy wants to do. Is he wants to stop the spread too. But he wants to stop the spread of the gospel more than anything. And so the last point is, is he wants in your life, he wants to stop the spread too. He don't want you talking about Jesus. He don't want you identifying your whole identity with Jesus Christ. He wants you treating Jesus as an interest. He wants you to create factions and political parties within the church. Because the more he can do that, the more that he can stop the spread of the gospel. And that is his desire. He does not want you and I to be unified. He hates us to be unified. He hates us to be from such different backgrounds, from different colors, from different ethnicities. He doesn't want us to do that. And so the gospel in its unifying sense, Satan wants to do that exact opposite. He wants to spread. He wants to stop the spread of the gospel. Galatians chapter 3. Going back to Galatians, Paul makes this statement and this reminder to us. Remember, Galatians chapter 2, he talks about the political factions within the church, the circumcision party. And just one chapter later, he then says this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. But you are all one in Christ Jesus. He talks about the unifying factor for me and you in our identity is the fact that you and I are one in Jesus. Now, here's what Paul wasn't saying. He wasn't saying that there's no reality of there being a Drew and Greek. He didn't he didn't say there's no longer gender roles when he says there's no male or female. He's not saying, oh, there's no such thing as gender roles. No, what he's saying is, is he's saying above all those things. Above your, those things that are in your life, above your skin color, above your, uh, your ethnicity, above your culture, above whatever country you're a part of, you are all one in Christ Jesus. He says above all those things. And he says, if you're a person that makes the gospel your identity, then everything that comes out of your mouth should be about unity in the church rather than I'm leaving the church. 
rather than I'm separating from those Christians, rather than I can't stand those Christians. So we deal with these issues of what Satan will try to do is he'll try to stop the spread of the gospel. Here's what I close with you today with. You see here I have, I want you to imagine because of COVID-19, I can't have people come up, but this is supposed to work with people up here. So you're just going to have to imagine imaginary people with me um, because I don't want you within six feet of me either. But um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, I want you to imagine I have, you see I, here I have these bandanas. So I have, I have two pink bandanas right here. I have two white bandanas. I have uh, two purple bandanas right here. And I have two red bandanas. And I want you to imagine if I called eight people here up here and I stood and I gave each one of those eight people one bandana each, just randomly, one bandana each. And each person as they're holding their bandana like this, I want you to imagine I tell them, now I want all of you guys to form separate groups from one another. What would happen immediately? People would form the groups based off of the color they had. But I never told them to do that. Why did they do that? Well, because it's the same interest with one another. You have red, I have red. You have purple, I have purple. You have white, I have white. You have pink, I have pink. And that's too often times what the church does. Is it based off of the color they have, the interest they have, the music they have, the stylings they have, the Bible version that they read? So what we begin to do is we create these parties. But what we don't realize is by doing that and building these parties, we immediately reduce the gospel down to interests. And I believe that's one of the problems of the church today is we've allowed church to become an interest group. Now, I want you to imagine instead I brought a new group of eight people and I gave two people half of an onion and I gave two people half a tomato and I gave two people lettuce and I gave two people buns and I gave two people meat and I said, all right, guys, I want you guys to now break off into groups with one another. Do you think that the two onion people would get with the onion? One onion would get with the other? Do you think one tomato would get with the other tomato person? Do you think the two buns would get with the bun people? No, they'd go, oh my gosh. We got to make a hamburger. We got all the perfect ingredients for a hamburger. And so instead, what we do is we wouldn't be building something based off of a similar interest, we would be actually building something off of an image, the end result. It would be to build a hamburger. And you see, that's what the gospel is. That's what you and I are. We're not in the, bu we're not in the business of getting with the same colors as each other. We're in the business of building an image with one another. We're in the business, the Bible talks about, Romans talks about spiritual gifts. There's a reason why each of us has a spiritual gift and we're all supposed to make up members of the body of Christ. We all, when you and I can get together, we build the image of God's church. We build the image of the gospel. 
We build the image of the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, God wants to use us, but he can't use us when we're in disorder from one another. When the reds hang out with the reds and the whites hang out with the whites. Where Republicans hang out with Republicans, Democrats hang out with Democrats, Libertarians hang out with Libertarians. That is not the church. That's not the gospel. And so we're always commenting, when's revival going to happen? When can God move? Well, God can move when we can start building the image of his church with one another. And we can show the world within our differences the fact that we still have unity. That is the gospel. The gospel is the fact that you and I trade everything in we have to receive the identity of Jesus Christ. And when we receive the identity of Jesus Christ, you and I become one. And you and I build an image of Christ that's actually our identity and not an interest. And we have to get to a place where we recognize more than anything that the enemy wants to separate us from one another. And he loves to separate the church from one another. He wants to stick us into religion. He wants us to build all of these rules and standards that people can't attain, even though the gospel has freed us. And then the last thing is, is he wants to stop the spread of the gospel. And you and I can't give in to such lies. We have to look at the enemy in the eyes and say, in this season, you will see more of the unity in God's church than you've ever seen before. And in ALFC, there will be more unity than we've ever had before with one another. And that's where we begin to see, show me some ID. When we can really show our identity in Jesus Christ through our unity with one another. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much today, Father for the words that you've shared the past couple of weeks, Lord. I pray, Father God, that you radically challenge us and change our lives. May you push us in closer relationship with you, Father God. May God, you help us realize that our faith is not an interest, but it's an identity, Lord. God, I pray you may challenge us to begin to build more and more the image of the gospel in our community, Father God. There's so much hate going on in this world, Father God. So much destruction going on in our world today. Our cities are being destructed, Father God. Our communities are being ripped apart, Lord. Fathers are being taken out of the home. We're losing children generation by generation, Father. But we know that nothing is out of your hands and nothing is far from you, God. So, Lord, I pray that you may use us to build your kingdom, Father God. And God, I pray you help us along as we may feel weak and we may feel tired. All the more Jesus will be relevant in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I want to make an invitation and an encouragement this morning. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then today I want to offer that invitation of what it means to truly have your identity in Christ. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he was risen from the grave, you will be saved. The gospel is actually quite simple, but it's really hard for sometimes us to wrap our head around. How could a loving God send his son down for me? We often, because we're works people, so we often, if someone does something for us, someone lends a hand, we often use the words, how can I repay you? What can I do to regain your favor because of such a thing you've done for me? So if someone ever helps you move out of your house 
or a coworker helps you with a shift and covers your shift, you want to respond with, how can I repay you? We are works righteousness minded people. That's why sometimes it's hard for us to get grasp the reality of the gospel because it's not a how can I repay you, God. We think because of what Jesus did, what am I supposed works am I supposed to do to regain God's favor? But by the very fact that you said yes to Jesus, that is grace and favor enough. And no matter how good of works you can do in this life, you cannot attain that grace and favor. You can't earn it. It's given to us as a free gift from God to accept Jesus as our sacrifice for our sins. So we have to repent of our sins, turn away from our past, turn away from our sins, and look to Jesus, look to the cross as our saving work. So I want to encourage everyone that's here together, if you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time, or you want to rededicate your life, say maybe it's been a long time since I've truly dedicated my life to Jesus, then I want to encourage you today to make a decision to follow Christ today. And we're all going to say a prayer together right now. And it's not the prayer that saves you, but it's an affirmation of what God is doing in your life. So let's pray. say this prayer together as a church today, family. Even if you're watching online, let's say this. Dear Lord Jesus, in this moment, I now confess you as Lord and Savior. Out of my mouth, I believe that you died and rose again. From this moment on, I will be committed to you and committed to the Father from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. We really hope that you enjoyed the message. If you said yes to Jesus Christ, we want to say congratulations and give you some resources to walk out your faith. Text NEXT to 41411 where you will get free information on that journey of faith. Be sure to tune in next time for more inspiring messages. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.